This podcast is part of the project No Master Territories Feminist Worldmaking and the Moving Image, a traveling exhibition and screening program dedicated to the histories of feminist nonfiction film and video, concentrating on the period of the 1970s to the 1990s. My name is Erica Balsam, and I'm one of the curators of this project together with Gila Peleg. No Master Territories came together through many encounters and conversations with film scholars, researchers, filmmakers, and artists working around the world. This series of four podcasts comes out of and extends some of these encounters. You're now about to hear Deepa Donraj in conversation with Lakshmi Padmanabhan. My name is Lakshmi Padmanabhan, and welcome to this podcast. In this interview, I have the pleasure of talking to Deepa Dhanraj, a brilliant documentary filmmaker working in India since the 1980s. She is one of the founders of the pioneering feminist film collective Yugantar, and over a career spanning four decades, her films have dealt with some of the most urgent political questions in India, ranging from women's rights and labor organizing to communal violence and the law. We discuss her entry into filmmaking in the late 1970s, a period of intense political upheaval and state repression in India, and she situates her documentary work as part of a broader debate on the possibilities of socialist feminist politics. It is hard to overstate Dhanraj's singular contribution to feminist film and the history of documentary in India, given the range and rigor of her work and the difficult conditions of film production and distribution under which she's made them. But throughout our conversation, she insists on the collaborative practice of documentary filmmaking, which is reflected as much in the content and formal tendencies apparent within the frame as in the forms of distribution and the audiences that she has intentionally cultivated over the years. To learn more about the feminist counterpublics that Dhanraj's films address, you can read Devika Girish's great essay on this film, Something Like a War, that's included in the book and accompanies this exhibition as well. And with that, here is the interview. I found this interview from 1981 with you that you did with Jump Cut. And it's amazing for its complete clarity and vision and in what you describe as your project, which then I, I think turns into these um, uh, shots that you just described, including Molkarin, Tambaku Chakila Ubali, Idu Kadamatraminan. Um, I haven't seen the fourth. I think there is a fourth. Yeah, it's but called Sudesha. It's on the Chipko movement. Okay. Um, thank you. Yeah, so... But I just wanted to quote what you said as your project at that point, and maybe that uh, you could talk a bit more about how you're thinking about these ideas now. But you said in that interview, um, when limiting the content of this series of films to working class women, because we feel we must locate the specificity of women's struggle within the context of the larger class struggle. We understand that a change in the production process can come about only through the working class, but we do not agree with socialist models regarding women's issues and are seeking a way of evolving our own models relevant to conditions in India. And I think what's really um, 
this quote that I've been sitting with for a while is because it feels so present even now in in the kinds of writing I see around feminist organizing and there's been lots of different kinds of locations of the feminist movement in India but this sort of clarity that you give us in 1981 about the intersection of the questions of labor and class with women's organizing and particularly um, as you said the informal sector or unorganized sector of where a lot of women's work happens. I'm curious, one, how you arrived at this kind of political diagnosis in that moment, where you started to think about feminist politics more broadly, and how um, that fit into your sort of earlier career, because you you were working with um, you you had some experience making films, right? You were working, you had done a degree in journalism and um, worked in film production before you started making these documentaries. So could you just talk about how those two intersect in the 80s for you? Uh, No, earlier I had worked uh, with fiction film directors as as an assistant. And um, and that was was really no preparation for uh, a life in film. Because the films, the films I worked on were very low budget, uh, very um, otter or very, in those days they were described as art cinema or they were definitely not mainstream. So they were very, they were very small crews. And uh, basically, uh, I think in all the well, three or four films that I did work on, I mean, you one day you could be doing costumes the second day you could be doing props the third day you could be doing just scheduling fourth day you could be doing you know dialogue correction script it was it was that kind of very uh, what do you call it um, cottage industry style okay. so uh, i you know it it was um, yeah so that really didn't uh, and i never went to film school i never went to film school so so even those three or four years that I worked with the uh, fiction film uh, directors definitely um, didn't give me, if you like, uh, film training, you know, because one was so busy behind the camera doing all this other stuff, right? Um, so that, but the only thing that it taught me, I, th- I think that whole fiction film uh, space was that uh, I didn't want, it didn't attract me. You know, um, because finally it was about executing a script, right? And um, and dealing with uh, you know really bad-tempered actors, dealing with you know the, the the whole thing of just making it happen. It it didn't somehow for me it it was like uh, an exercise in execution, how you execute something. Um, so the the. To stay in that world definitely was not uh, something that uh, I was intending to do for very long. What happened, I think, I think for many people, my generation, I would say that uh, in, you know, in 1975, 76, you know, when the emergency was declared and, uh, and I think it was a really a kind of political baptism for many uh, young people of my generation at the time, because for 18 months, you had uh, literally, you know, all human rights were civil liberties, human rights, everything was suspended, the opposition was in prison. 
there were horrific human rights crimes, for example, students, uh, in some cases, students, uh, other activists, you know, extrajudicial killings. It was uh, press censorship. And I think those 18 months, I think at that time, um, a lot of uh, churning was happening. There were so many other movements that were there, which had to come to an abrupt halt. You had Jai Prakash Narayan's, uh, you know, total revolution movement, where lots of young people were involved. Uh, the Chhatra Yusangashwaini, which was a Gandhian movement. You had, uh, you know, socialist groups, which had women's wings, where women were mobilized. You had, uh, and very interestingly, in Hyderabad, you had the first feminist young uh, women's political group, um, POW, it was called, Progressive Organization of Women. You had mobilizing taking place in Maharashtra. You had the Bodh Gaya movement, where, again, a lot of uh, young uh, urban women activists, students, and uh, agricultural workers who were women were, uh, you know, were fighting for land rights from priest landlords who controlled the land. So, you know, the country was in ferment. I think, I think prior to the emergency being declared, already you saw that the promise of independence had collapsed. You know, there were, there were food riots. There was, um, there was so much unrest. Okay. And then the emergency arrives and, uh, and I think that, and after, post the emergency, I think at that time, uh, suddenly what we call loosely the women's question, okay? What, what is the women's question? This began to be raised more and more in many locations, in different sites. Um, and the first, uh, I think the first big uh, turning point was really... Uh, custodial rape and uh, this is often cited that you know the that there were these two uh, there was this rape case of a adivasi girl mathura and though that happened in 75 but so there was a huge mobilization where um against uh, not only just custodial rape but the whole um you know the i would say at that point what began was also an investigation into, um, you know, bodily integrity politics. What what would you call that? You know, I don't want to sound too, too, you know, clumsy here. But and that kind of galvanized, I think, a, a rethinking, a, a relooking at what was the women's question really, because it became very clear that in in the more traditional political formulations, whether they were parties or trade unions, that there was not much room really to raise women's questions because they were so dominated by uh, by men, basically, right? So in these kind of discussions, I think uh, in these kind of discussions, one thing that was very clear for, for us was that we, as from the quote that, I mean, <laughs> the quote that you read out, that... Um, we, there were two things. One is the excitement of actually uh, trying to understand how uh, how these women had mobilized, organized, created a union, uh, got some leverage, you know, and were negotiating for uh, whatever their demands were, which was very exciting. 
And the idea was not just to film uh, this, of course, to film it, but the idea was also how do you return these films uh, to uh, to the com- to these communities, right? How do we take them back to other locations where where women workers uh, in different sectors, whether it was construction, for example, or other sectors? And could that be could that be some way of using this material, using these films to start a conversation where uh, women in other sectors could look at it and think of maybe some kind of different political imagination, I would say, right? So that was the intention. So that's how we identified the two, um, you know, the two union stories, which is the domestic worker story and the tobacco worker story. And the, And I have to say that nothing was fixed in stone, you know, it was a process, right? I mean, we had some hypotheses, but once you get there, you know, it it really gets busted. I mean, you have to, and this we learned very fast. And I think uh, just by listening, actually really listening to women, listening to where they were located, what their challenges were, what they had to face, and and then thinking, how do we, how do we really create a kind of collaborative practice or how do you create a co-authorship practice to 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 make a film you know uh, this is really important and i think with each film we we got a bit better at it more more sensitive i would say um so that was the kind of practice you know how do you stand with rather than speak for i think this is a big distinction and this is something that we learned film by film okay and there was a natural progression because in the first two though we were looking at women as workers we were trying to look at them not just as workers this was also something that we we struggled with and tried to do so for example in Molkarin you you'll see uh, there is that scene where this woman um, you know she uh, you know, she acts out her husband being drunk and the whole thing of alcoholism and, you know, that. Uh, so it was tentative. And I think they sort of demonstrate our political understanding at the time. We can't revise our history now. Moving from film to film. So how do we then, I mean, women as workers, then not just as workers, then how do we then go to the next institution, really, which is family? And how do we look at power structures within the family? How do we look at how that plays out? And that is the film that we did, the fiction film, which we did with uh, Stri Shakti Sangatna. This is a collected, uh, again, a women's group in Hyderabad. And that process was very different. I mean, in the sense that the, the, the material, the script was formed from very intense uh, conversations and discussions, almost like what you would call, you know, uh, the American feminists have this word, right? Consciousness raising groups, things like that, where all of us shared really uh, what I like to call, uh, you know, the whole structural notion of violence, right? In Indian families. So when we talk about violence uh, or violence against women, it's normally framed 
as either sexual violence, domestic violence, psychological violence, but by uh, male partners. Okay, what I'm talking about is more if you look at uh, the life cycle approach, right? And you look at what happens to girls. So um, the way uh, the way it operates in families, right? Uh, whether it's access to education, access to food, even psychologically, you're always lesser. So, you know, the whole thing, that the business of marriage, the pressure to have male children. So I call it that there is this level of violence which is more structural and related really to life cycle events, okay, uh, which women face. And I think in the... In the Stri Shakti uh, partnership, in that collaboration, we really, because the discussions and, and the experiences we were all sharing in the group really came from that place. So we could create a script really that um, emerged from those, that kind of sharing. If you look at Molkarin, the leadership was socialist. And if you look at the Tambaku film, that he was also kind of... No, the Molkaran film was uh, a left group called Lal Nishan, so more more uh, of a Marxist group. The tobacco film uh, leadership was more socialist. And then with Sudesha, which is this... Uh, when we talk about the Chipko movement and her involvement, it's really a Gandhian movement, you know, Gandhian leadership, which is completely different in the... Um, in the way they uh, organize or mobilize. So even this I find very interesting. It, it wasn't as if we were, um, you know, but that we were committed to any one um, kind of ideology, except I think broadly bearing, you know, keeping the faith with uh, some sort of socialist understanding, I would say in some sense, broadly. But we were willing to go wherever women were, um, Wherever women were active, wherever women were uh, leading movements, wherever wherever they were engaged in movements, which we felt were important, and and uh, that's what that's the history of those four films. Could you talk a bit about um, how you distributed the films? Because you've you mentioned a few times how it was received, and I um, I'd love to hear how you took it back and what kinds of conversations they inspired and if yeah if you also want to reflect on restoring them now and what kinds of conversations you're having around them no i I think that you know you have to think at that time i mean we must have been half mad you know because think of these 16 mm reels okay they're really heavy okay film reels the 16 mm projector a speaker that is separate and all this stuff, and you have to load it into a bus, sometimes on the top of a bus. You have to um, get down somewhere, find somewhere where you can literally steal electricity because uh, we would wait for it to be nighttime so that, you know, that's when women finish their work and can really have the time to come and watch something. Uh, so you're stealing electricity from some pole and uh, it's being projected on a wall or any kind of space that you can find and and very often you have to project it at least three times because the first time uh, everybody's just settling down or, or it's too much noise or uh, you know so 
in each instance, I mean, these were, if you, I would say, like district towns, places like that, where we would actually go with with the uh, films, and showing the films for us was very important because, you know, each screening we learned something, right? Each screening we learned what was working, what was not working, and we came back with. Um, also from those locations, what were women experiencing, right, in each setting? In cities, in bigger cities like um, Bombay, for example, uh, you know, they would show it in a, in a small hall, in, in a slum maybe, sometimes in, a, in those kind of spaces. Or very often they were also shown in um, union offices, in schools, uh, not schools, uh, but in the building, you know, in the government school building after class was over. These kind of places, it was not, uh, so it was very, uh, you know, it, it was, yeah, it was not easy to, to set up these screenings. And, um, but it was extremely rewarding because um, each time it was <clears throat> not just about a screening. It was not just about watching. It was about after the screening, the kind of conversations. And um, and that would go on. See, the films are roughly about 30 minutes, like 28, 30 minutes, right? But the discussions would be three hours and post, right? And this this was really fascinating. I mean, it, it was a... And tragically now, when I think of, you know, people shooting with cell phones and these small digital cameras and these cheap cameras and recorders and and we didn't have all that but i so regret that those discussions that we didn't we didn't have the money really to even film one properly but they were so rich you know um to record i mean in that sense what happened yeah so i i'd say the screenings were very important and um, it was not just us who screened i mean we did we used to do one round but the films were available for People would pick them up and um, take them around. And though we we made the last film in 1983, the screenings continued for another three years, at least, right? And we had language versions. We had uh, four language versions, so they were. It was easy to, you know, uh, the I mean, understanding comprehension was was very easy because. Of, there was no question of reading subtitles. It was just, you know, there was an audio, uh, audio dub. Let's come back to that once we talk a bit about something like a war, because I think um, that film, after this narration that you've really carefully laid out of the way that your sort of process of questioning and what you wanted the documentaries to do and learning through the process of making them, um, that film to me seems like such a sort of concise, clear um, continuation, a certain kind of um, completion. I, w- I don't want to say completion, but um, it seems to bring together a lot of the questions that these other four films were sort of weaving um, through, or as you were saying, you were sort of developing as you went along. And just to sort of try and describe the film, I mean, I guess it's nominally about the kind of violent implementation of government family planning measures in India and um, 
the way that that kind of um, state, the legal system was functioning on a certain kind of eugenic logic, particularly targeting poor women, Dalit Bahujan women, rural women, right? Um, structurally marginalized um, women in general. And, but it also is about so much more than that, right? So what we get through that, through an hour of the film is, and what really stays um, with me, and I assume many people that watch it, is the way that you get to see something which I don't see a lot of, which is um, these women having fun, talking about their pleasure, talking about pain, talking about doing it in a sort of space of leisure and physical intimacy and comfort with each other, um, and still having the kind of the real political critique that emerges through the editing and the structure of the film, but also um, these moments of personalization. So it's not just sort of structural critique. It's also meeting particular characters who charm us and are amazing figures on their own right. And I could keep going on, but I wanted to hear you talk a bit about um, what brings you to make something like a war, how it takes this form, and yeah, what were the sort of the process of making it, if you could talk a bit about that to start. No, so I think, uh, see, what was happening, like, almost from the mid-80s, I would say, and even before that, the that uh, the government of India had already started um, uh, testing, for example, hormonal contraceptives. Uh, they, they were doing clinical trials and in great secrecy, okay? So, uh, for example, to even get data as to how many women were part of a trial or... Uh, you know, what were the injectables that were being used? What were the protocols that were being followed? This was all very, very difficult to obtain. But what, you know, what shattered that, I think, was that in 1986, uh, you have uh, women from Sri Shakti Sangatma, the women's group in Hyderabad, who actually stopped one clinical trial that was being conducted where uh, very poor, um, even rural women, but also migrant women, not based in Hyderabad, were being told that if you take this injection, you won't have a, a child, right? You won't get pregnant. Uh, they were not, nothing more than that. Hmm? And uh, when these, uh, when the women, when the feminists from Sri Shakti Sangatna went to that location and stopped the trial and they said, uh, and the district collector was there, everybody was there, all the other government officials were there at the trial. And, and they asked, they said, you know, uh, have these women been told about uh, what they're being given and have you obtained their consent? Have you informed them? Have you followed any kind of ethical protocols? Right. And, Besides that, the fact that both Netan and Depo-Provera, these, these two uh, hormonal injectables, um, there were women in the group, in the Sri Shakti group, who were also scientists, who were also doctors, and had the kind of um, medical information as to really how dangerous uh, these injections were, right? I mean, these contraceptives were that were being given. 
And slowly as, as this came to light, that how do we uh, understand the interest of the Government of India Health Department and what is that interest in um, reducing populations, reducing certain populations. So by 1986, I, I would say that the it is the women's groups uh, and the women's movement in India that turned the whole question of contraception uh, into a political issue. They made it a political issue because they managed to bring together three or four things. Okay, One is the fact that you have basically a very neo-Malthusian um, outlook, you know, of the health department. You have complete collusion at all levels of the bureaucracy, okay? You have the scientific establishment, which is also completely callous, and, and uh, the pharma industry, which is only for profit, and basically, you know, experimenting on the bodies. Uh, of uh, poor women, right? Um, so I think to see contraception in India is not a neutral subject, right? It's not a neutral subject. It's it is used in. They used to call it nation building. You know, they it was an it was an activity. Uh, so that was linked to nation building, it was linked to um, the whole notion of development, right? Now, it was women's groups and um, and the women's movement activists who managed to pull these threads together, right? To and, and really turn it around on its head, you know, development for whom, which populations were being reduced, and if they were being reduced, what was being gained, what was the role of coercion, why did we need targets, right? Um, and why did we need, uh, and what was the role of international agencies, whether it was funding, whether it was pharma uh, people, whether... Just a very simple example. Now, both De Depo Provera, for example, was first tested on women of color in U.S. prisons. Okay, this was done in the 60s. Now, the data was available. It was available to everybody. Okay, that it caused uh, terrible problems. You know, it caused uh, bleeding, depression, osteoporosis. It was uh, cancer. This data already was available. Now. Why did the Indian government, when this data is available, okay, conduct their own trials on their own population of poor women? Basically, it was not done on middle class women. It was done on poor women, very vulnerable groups of women. Uh, so it was even, so even what, what is the science in this, right? This is not, this is just bad science. This is not even science, right? So it was the, I would say, the brilliance, really, of the women's movement at the time that they could pull all this together, right? So the first, uh, actually, the first court case, the first petition that goes up to Supreme Court in 1986 has this perspective. It really has this perspective that uh, what is being played out here is actually population control, 
you know and it is the government with and you know in india the uh, i have to add that the eugenic argument maps very beautifully onto our caste system okay it's a perfect fit so which populations then are going to be the target right and don't forget that in the emergency okay the the this is another thing you know the the brutality of the health delivery system okay now in the emergency we already have uh, this the vasectomies that are conducted very often with so much pressure coercion at gun point and you have 6.3 million men is that a joke i mean think of the logistics of doing that in 18 months okay so and you have sanjay gandhi who equates um you know bringing down certain populations with nation building with uh, with development and in his 20 point program you have overpopulation and slum clearance put together okay and you have huge populations of people for example in delhi turkman gate so many places that were cleared people were pushed out uh, very far from delhi and the only title deed that they were given to coerce them to go was their vasectomy certificate so they would frame the vasectomy certificate literally in homes i have seen that okay uh, as a claim that this this site or this this house or this plot that has been given to me was this was the negotiation so you have that already in 75 okay by 86 this is what happens this case takes 14 years in court 14 years the case against uh, dangerous hormonal um, injectables they're called and the the win is that it won't come into the official government program but it's like it's a really a lost cause because by the time it's in markets it's there in in markets it's and you have private sector you have doctors prescribing it so this is a this is the story of anyway to get back to why i made the film right so all this was happening i, I was very aware of you know uh, of these debates these discussions um and i just felt you know could there be a way i mean really making that film was how can we intervene in these debates okay can we bring this perspective right can you bring this perspective to the public because you have to remember then that the family planning program at that point as far as the middle class was concerned was a sacred cow you couldn't touch it it was it was the every middle class person felt we are poor because we are too many right we are backward because we are too many and i still remember this uh, woman in delhi in a slum and she told me that uh, i'll first say it in hindi and then translate it she said agar mere char bacche honge to mujhe maruti gaadi milegi she said if i have four children that which is uh, you know or four children or two children which is what the government wants me to have do you really think i'll be able to buy a car you know it is so illogical that uh, her her um, her poverty would disappear you know if she had fewer children that just didn't makes just illogical right anyhow so 
actually that was the idea i i just thought maybe there's a way to bring this perspective from, from these discussions and debates which are happening within the women's movement can i put that together as as and um, you know and ma- create a different kind of political intervention you know with that that's how it began and um, yeah so apart from the sterilization camps and the other things that we filmed for me it was very important to have the voices of women who are really the targets of this program on camera you know and we started with very uh, you know just we spent 10 days together and it was every day we'd have these very loose conversations it they were you know um and um, you know the conversations about everything it would be not just about their lives about um about sexuality about menstruation about pregnancy childbirth so many things you know the whole thing of this uh, sun preference what it was like to grow up as a girl and these very loose sort of conversations in that space in a you know for 10 days i mean we just um would film and the bits you see in the film are then sort of edited from 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 there from that but um, but it was very important to really have a, you know it's a, it's a sort of a counter track like in the film in the, to understand what do they think you know from their location about the, you know just not only their lives but they i mean their uh, what they think of the program what they think of um, their bodies what they want you know um yeah so that 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 was the that was the purpose of having those uh, sequences mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and so about those sequences which are i think uh also invoke the kind of um community that i see for in in that scene that you talked about in molkaren where the woman acts out her husband's you know drunkenness that same level of play and intimacy so clearly carries through in something in those scenes in something like a war and um i i guess one question that i had from those particular scenes was how how did you think about or how did you navigate the way of the the presence of the camera right and also i assume at the time if it was it a, a pretty heavy camera like were you shooting it or were there or were there men as part of the crew who were shooting how how did you navigate those kinds of dynamics in that space so yes so the the crew was all men basically my uh, my partner uh, navroz contractor so he he shoots he he's shot all our films um but the way i think that you know like the beginning when we started the this this workshop with the women i think the first you know the first day there was no filming at all i mean we 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 had to be part of the circle we had to introduce ourselves the everybody including the sound recordist who was a man and navroz um and it was a 16 mm camera yeah so pretty heavy and uh, the sound recordist was 
you know, he was he was doing the boom himself and he, he had a Nagra in those days. So that was pretty heavy equipment. But there was this thing that they 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 had to be part of the group in that sense. They had to talk about who they were, what their families were about. It was a um and I still remember the 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 sound recorders, it's really it was really lovely. So he sat down when it, it was his turn to speak, he said my name is Dilip Subramaniam and I'm from Bombay. Silence. Then all the women look at him and say, and then? That's it. <laughs> you know? And they literally had to coax him to talk about his family, about uh, where he grew up. You know, so this, this thing of uh, really getting to know each other, I think that makes a big difference. But I'll tell you that once they started speaking, there was something about that circle, which was they were very self-absorbed and engaged with what was happening. And really, they were not paying any attention at all to what was going on. You know, what the camera people were doing, what the sound, the sound boom is a bit, uh, you know, it, it, he had to move it, and it, but they got used to it very quickly. And then you know, the first day there was some curiosity about this equipment, but the second day it was it was so blase. You know, it's, it's something there at the back, but but there was that core energy of the group, okay, that kept them completely engaged. So that didn't come up. I mean, it wasn't an issue really. And the thing is that you know we'd shoot in available light, so we maybe start at nine in the morning and stop at five in the evening, and then the men would leave. They'd go back where they were staying and just Abha and myself were staying in this house. There were 10 of us. And so we was we were there day and night. So I think that kind of friendship and intimacy that happens when you live together, eat together, cook together, you know, it, it you do get very relaxed. I think that that also shows that they are very relaxed and comfortable because um you know, and it's not as if the conversation stopped once the camera left. The conversations continued, you know. So it was just that kind of uh, mood, I think. Yeah. And trust. It's also trust, right? Because after a point, yeah. Yeah, I was um, also struck speaking about trust on the other track that was in the, in the film, which is the... Uh, sort of complete lack of uh, self-reflection or anything from the conversations that you have with the doctors and medical establishment and um, the access that you have into that space. I was, could you say a bit about how that, you know, when you go in there with these cameras, do they have I mean that the I think it's Dr. Mehta is sort of boasting about you know can he can do this surgery in forty five seconds and um, comparing it to Tata and Bidla's work and really as loquacious as you could possibly expect and I was curious about yeah how those interviews went and how you gathered that material. See what's important to remember is that they all thought that they were doing something very important for the nation. Not for a minute did they think. In fact, Dr. Mehta was very upset with the film because he had no idea 
that uh, his bit would be, you know, edited in that way or, or by the rest of the material. What he was doing, he was doing. But but all of them, I mean, there was no question that they had any doubts in their minds that uh, they were doing anything that was, um, yeah, that was in, in any way unethical or... or uh, you know, or coercive, or that the whole program itself needed, uh, you know, needed to be interrogated. No, they, they, there's no question in their minds, you know. And Dr. Mehta, for example, he, he, he wanted the publicity. I mean, you know, he invited us. Like when I contacted him, he said, please come and please, um, you know, you have to show me doing this, you know. So... So that, that's what I'm trying to say. There is a mindset issue here also, okay? The mindset is that it is the poor whose numbers have to be brought down no matter the price, no matter the cost, right? It's, it's, a, it's a practically a national and civic duty. But this is how they think. So why they, why they wouldn't think uh, anything of it. They would think, that basically I'm showcasing them, you know, their amazing work. You know, till something like a war was made and there there hasn't been a single film or, I mean, there were of course academic articles, but never a film that looked at this program critically. Never. It was the first time. But I have to tell you where I found Dr. Mehta. I think that's also a very interesting story that I found him in the Lancet, which is this very prestigious British medical journal. And they were full of praise for how he had created this technological fix. And uh, yeah, they thought it's the absolute answer to our teeming millions that here's this Indian doctor who's created this fabulous, um, you know, he's created this system, which is basically a technological breakthrough. And you have the British journal, a medical journal, Lancet, praising him. And I, I, I found him there and I said, oh, my God, I have to find this guy. No, there is this. Uh, it's not just uh, when I say Malthusian, you know, I mean, don't forget that our program started in 51, 1951. And this was a program that uh, really was came from the West. You know, I mean, we we. The advisors came from there, from from the U.S. It was uh, it was part of the negotiation with the Green Revolution. McNamara was part of it. So you know, this is the history, right, of how these populations are are um, you know how they are thought about. Okay, earlier the 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 way uh, say third world populations were thought about was that they would there would be political instability you know because if you had uh, if the this this really falls malthusian um, you know premise that if you if you have too many uh, you know uh, there's not enough to go around whereas they don't look at the fact that if you ask a false question you will get a false answer which is that instead of distributing what there is you get rid of surplus right which is exactly what, uh, so 
So in the late 60s and even during the whole Cold War period, all that time, if you were looking at third world populations as being sites of, uh, say, you know, political instability and particularly the communists getting involved, much later, if you start looking at the late 90s and even 2000, you've got the environmentalists who are now blaming, um, you know, blaming third world populations for environmental degradation, for global warming, for... Uh, so you have things like in the US, the Sierra Club, you have people like that who are very powerful lobbyists who are still lobbying for the same thing. And then you have a very good fit with the Indian uh, elites and the Indian middle class who share the same kind of values and are happy to execute um, those programs, um, you know, design their own programs. So we, yeah, I mean, uh, there was a lot to handle. I mean, you know, in one film, it was not easy to, I just tried to hint at these connections, you know. Mm-hmm. But, and so there are two more things that I wanted to ask. One was um, what was really powerful. So one, I was curious about the edit and how you did actually gather all these stories together um, because so much of the sort of very clear but, you know, not heavy-handed critique of the program comes through through the sequence of the images and the ways that you use the intertitles and where you use sound and where you don't use sound. And of course, that fi- that the final word, both you know, um, literally and metaphorically, is given to Gyasi Bai, who says they're not killing, they're not killing poverty. So not in response to the Garibi Hatao kind of slogan, they're not killing poverty, they're killing the poor, which then comes back as the sort of title card. And so I was curious, as you were putting it together, um, that which otherwise the title cards are mostly used, I think, for some really striking quotes from like Indra Gandhi saying, you know, some people's personal rights will have to be sacrificed for the human rights of all. Right. So um, the place of that kind of text and voice and image in your edit made some of your critiques very clear and I was curious if you how you went through the editing process how long it took whether you had um, certain scenes that you definitely wanted to include how yeah how all of that evolved into this what we see now the well the editing process it took about three months uh, yeah almost three months and I had the absolute privilege to work with a fabulous editor who, who was very experienced, uh, a Canadian woman who had done uh, so many, you know, incredible documentaries. Uh, and it was interesting actually uh, working with her because um, she doesn't, of course, know the Indian languages or the context. And, and uh, but she was very, uh, um, you know, very sharp in terms of, uh, what structurally, you know, what you can do as a structure and also the visuals and how to work with that. But the editing process was very fascinating for both of us because each time in in the translation, I was not just translating dialogue, I was translating context, right? Context, history, all of that, so that she could understand 
uh, you know, uh, she could understand what the whole, um, yeah, everything. I mean, the politics, the caste question, the, I mean, so much stuff. So in, in the edit room and because of these conversations that we had, I think the film was very became very clear what the structure could be, right? Because the more I had to translate or talk about it, uh, my confusions would sort of evaporate because each time I had to explain why something had to be there or not, and uh, you know, and what it would mean uh, for an Indian audience, basically, right? It had to be. Primary, the primary audience was, was an Indian audience. So even that too. And her name was Haida Paul and it's, uh, she's no more. And uh, she's a very good friend. I miss her terribly. But um, just her, her, her questions, I think, you know, and um, the way she would frame them. So I would really have to think this through, you know, uh, so it was a very intense process, and I think yeah, we it, it was three months. It took three months, so yeah, nonstop. I mean, every day nonstop, working long hours uh, because you know I I had to go back to India. I did it in with in, in Vancouver, and so there was also the pressure of you know that I had to leave and return, but. Um, yeah, so, and the idea of the intertitles. Now, the intertitles for me were, <clears throat> one thing is that, you know, I think this idea of giving quotations with uh, with who has said it, and, and to me was very powerful, you know, that it's not, the whole film is the authorial voice, okay? It doesn't have much, actually have my voice in that way. The whole film has it. But in these bits, it's really like, uh, okay, so they're almost like citations, okay? And the thing is that in the end, what I wanted to do with Garcibai is that I wanted to give her the same uh, status as a, a, a scholar or a you know, public intellectual. So the first two bits that she says, I don't subtitle actually, right? So she says it in Marwadi, and then I have the title, but the title comes on black. So it's like a, a quote, right? It's like a citation. It's not a translation while she's speaking. So it gives you that weight of what that is, you know? I wanted to go back to what you said about the Mumbai Film Festival and how this film was received and to broadly think about um, how was the film received? How, how did it circulate? What kinds of conversations did it spur in that moment? And yeah, how was there any backlash? What were the community's responses? I mean, it, was, it, was received, it was received very well. I'd say this film really, really traveled. I mean, this film really traveled because, you know, then we also have to think of what was happening with technology because at that time, you know, we, we could put it onto VHS tape. And that immediately made, uh, you know, we could sell tapes, we, tapes could be posted around the country. Um, so, no, the film really traveled. I mean, it, it became, um, um, I would say, just in, it's just in so many locations, whether it was, um, yeah, 
all kinds of locations the film traveled. Of course, the backlash in that sense was that uh, the only was that you know one thing that happened is that this is this film became more than a film, okay? Because the testimony of the of the uh, North Plant, uh, you know, women who are in the film was used in uh, used in the court case. Right, so it became it became a legal uh, document, and the the scene where uh, you know the woman is recruiting somebody in the hospital for the vaccine trial, and she says no, nothing will happen, you'll be fine, and you know. So what was happening at that time was that there was a very large uh, group of international uh, feminists who were working on health and particularly these kind of questions and. And definitely working on the vaccine and and the dangers of a vaccine trial. So that portion was used, in fact, uh, by the Canadian feminists who put pressure on IDRC, which was their developmental agency, which was funding the trial in India, and they withdrew funding. So, you know, there were bits and pieces of the film which, which then entered other spaces, you know, legal spaces or or even like this. I mean, that you that Canadian feminists could use certain sections as as really as evidence, you know, of uh, yeah of the fact that there was really that no protocols were being followed, you know. And uh, the thing is that the film is, and the other thing that happened, like, you know, over the years, I've realized that the film is, um, has gone into universities. And, and for example, in the US, uh, women make movies who distribute the film. Uh, I think they got it into every university that has a human geography department or a, a population studies department, or they have, you know, courses like that it's practically you know population politics 101 it's it's shown all the time i mean uh, even in universities in india it's it, it's so it's gotten to so you know it's had a different life cycle this film it's um, it's got many many different avatars i was curious to hear um your sense of working within documentary within a sort of changing infrastructure for it. So from the sort of FDI moment to uh, which you in something like a war, a lot of the sort of government sponsored documentary footage or not a lot, but there's they're woven in, right? Because it really becomes a commentary on the way that the government sort of support of documentaries reproduced the kind of documentary pro- documentary became a tool for, pro- for government propaganda in that sense. And that's been the case for a while. And then this, um, the emergence of your work, Anand Patwajan's work, right, that people who are sort of using documentary to do something slightly different. And now the sort of shift to, as we were saying, um, as you were saying, there's like phone videos, student videos, there's again, a new sort of um, changing place for something like documentation. And I was just curious to hear you reflect on how you've been 
been able to make work in these changing climates? Has it has, does it affect you on a day to day basis? Do you think have you had to work with different kinds of institutions making work or um, yeah, that's a very sort of open ended how how has it been to make work under such intensely repressive environments, I guess? No, I, I would say, you know, it's a, see, it's a challenge. I mean, to make documentaries in India is a real challenge because, as you know, I mean, there there is hardly any funding. There's just no, um, you know, that kind of uh, support, right? So that's at one level. I mean, the whole material question, which is a very big question, actually. But uh, I would say that Having said that, I think like in the last 10 years, I think Indian documentary is just exploding. I think there's so many young people who are making fabulous work, who are really very creative, very, um, you know, personal stories, experimental takes. I mean, it's so vibrant, you know, despite all the, uh, you know, despite all the challenges, right? And that works is happening, even though this whole mediascape is doing whatever whatever is happening in that, which is which I would call really more that is more a kind of information space, you know. It's more like it's more like news, like news, uh, that kind of space. But uh, but I feel really, I mean, there are so many. Uh, filmmakers today who are trying uh, different forms, different approaches, different... Uh, it's its fabulous, actually. I, I don't think we've ever had such a such a rich time, you know, in, in the history of Indian documentary, really. And now, of course, you know, with the writing with Fire having gotten this Oscar nomination, and it's just... Um, and... You know, I always used to say this to uh, feature film directors, you know, because they always think that we are nobody and they they are the mainstream, right? Fiction people in India <laughs> at least think, think that of themselves. And I always used to say, you know, you guys, for the last 10 years, you should look at the number of awards that Indian films have won, okay? And 90% of them are documentaries, okay? But this is never talked about, right? <laughs> this this. So when they got the Oscar nomination, I thought this is great because it's um, and without any lobbying, without anything like that, right? They they just got it on the strength of the film, and so I thought, okay, all you fiction people, please pay attention now. <laughs> you know, take notice, right? Okay, what's going on here? I mean, uh, so I'm just saying, you know, it's uh, yeah, I think. In all kinds of formats, people are working and uh, struggling and, and, you know, really doing stuff. It's just fantastic. That's what I'd say. I mean, personally, for me, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's been too... I've been working for so long. It's like, I think, I, think I often wonder. It's like 40 years, man. It's like, you know, it's a long time. I mean, Maybe it's time to grow roses or whatever one does. I don't know. <laughs> no, the thing is, see, the, I think with the, for me, for a film, because I'm so slow and I take so long, like I have to really fall in love with the subject, you know, to say, okay, next three years of my life or whatever. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. 